Chapter 9 The Real Christ His Imperturbable Peace, Constant Joyfulness, and Unconquerable Optimism Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 I will greatly rejoice in Jehovah. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with a garland, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. John chapter 15 verse 11 Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. John chapter 14 verse 27 He will not fail nor be discouraged, till he have set justice in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 4 He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 We have already considered eight features in the picture which God has given us in his word of his own Christ. The one we studied in the last chapter was in striking contrast at first glance and in apparent opposition to the three we had studied in the three chapters preceding it. In this chapter, we shall study three features in the portrait together, because they are so closely related that it is almost impossible to separate them, though they really are distinct. Furthermore, to be fully understood, they must be studied together. They are in some respects closely related to that feature we studied last, his manliness, but in other respects they are in striking contrast to it. Our subject in this chapter is the real Christ, his imperturbable peace, constant joyfulness, and unconquerable optimism. His imperturbable peace. We shall consider first the imperturbable peace of the real Christ, the Christ of God's own endorsement, Christ Jesus. The whole life of our Lord was characterized by a calm composure, a self-possession, a divine serenity, and an abiding and abounding peace that nothing could disturb. He was always sure of himself, and of the happy outcome of whatever events occurred, no matter how disturbing they might appear to be. Calm in the Midst of Peril The imperturbable peace of the Christ of God was manifested by his perfect calm and confidence in an hour of apparently great peril. We see this in Mark. And there ariseth a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the boat, insomuch that the boat was now filling. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awake him and say unto him, Teacher, carest thou not that we perish? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye fearful? Have ye not yet faith? Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 40, cross-reference Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, and Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 26. We see from parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke that his disciples were almost beside themselves with fear. 
Our Lord Jesus was not only perfectly calm and fearless, He was also even surprised at their fearfulness, and gently rebuked it, exclaiming, Why are ye fearful? Have ye not yet faith? The great calm that lay on the bosom of the recent storm in Galilee was nothing compared to the great calm that possessed his own heart during all that wild and tempestuous scene. Confidence in the Face of Calamity The imperturbable peace of Christ Jesus was manifested in his calm confidence in the face of the crushing calamity and overwhelming sorrow of others whom he loved and wished to help. This is illustrated in the case of the death of the daughter of Jairus, as recorded in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. Mark's account is recorded in verses 35 to 42. While he yet spake, they come from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the teacher any further? But Jesus, not heeding the word spoken, saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Fear not, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow with him, save Peter and James, and John the brother of James. And they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And he beholdeth a tumult, and many weeping and wailing greatly. And when he was entered in, he saith unto them, Why make ye a tumult, and weep? The child is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But he, having put them all forth, taketh the father of the child and her mother, and them that were with him, and goeth in where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he saith unto her, Talitha kumi, which is, being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel rose up and walked, for she was twelve years old. And they were amazed straightway with a great amazement. Notice the excitement, the tumult, and the excessive grief of the others on the one hand, and the perfect calm, peace, and confidence of the Lord Jesus on the other hand. Peace in the Face of Death The imperturbable peace of the Christ of God was manifested by His serene and exultant peace in expectation of His own death, a death of unparalleled and inconceivable sorrow, shame, and agony. His soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Matthew chapter 26 verse 38 his heart was breaking with the weight of man's reproach. Psalm 69, verse 20. But underneath all the sorrow and agony, as the sin-bearer of the whole race, was the deep, harmonious undertone of perfect peace. For example, he said to his disciples who were crushed with the revelation of his coming death, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John chapter 14, verse 1. We see it again in the twenty-seventh verse of the same chapter, where, with a wondrous smile of perfect serenity, he gently whispered, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Perfect Rest on the Cross The imperturbable peace of the Lord Jesus was manifested by His perfect rest in God even when hanging on the cross, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him, and the Father hid his face from him, because he was our sin-bearer. It is true that he cried with a breaking heart in unutterable mental and spiritual agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And then there came, welling up from the deeper depths of his innermost spirit, that other cry of perfect trust and peace. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And as he uttered that last cry of perfect peace and hope, and handed his spirit over to the Father, his earthly life ended in a glorious sunburst of peace triumphant to the very end. In this peace that nothing can disturb, it is our privilege to follow him. Whatever perils, losses, and agonies we may be called to face, we do not know. Whatever real persecutions and crosses we may be called to bear, no one can tell. When there is a loud call for sacrifice for others and the end rapidly draws near, we still know that they cannot possibly match the sorrow, agony, and shame He bore for us, and yet He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. John chapter 14 verse 7 His Constant Joyfulness now let's look at another feature God has portrayed in His picture of the real Christ, His crucified Son, His constant joyfulness. Isaiah tells us that the coming Christ of God was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He goes on to give us a detailed and vivid description of the appalling sorrows and griefs that would overtake the suffering Messiah as He made full atonement for our transgressions and iniquities. Later, after telling us all these griefs that the Messiah would suffer for us, he adds, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 This is a figure taken from the terrible birth pangs of the mother, followed by that wondrous joy that only a mother can know as she looks into the face of her newborn babe, the most beautiful and entrancing sight her eyes have ever gazed upon. Our Lord uses the same figure in speaking to His disciples of the transporting joy that was to be theirs. After His resurrection, this joy would be the outcome of the heart-rending pangs they would experience at His crucifixion. Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman when she is in travail hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But when she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye therefore now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one taketh away from you. John chapter 16, verses 20-22 through 22. This is not all. On the night before his crucifixion, with the cross and all its associated agonies fully in view, Jesus our Lord and Christ said to his disciples, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. John chapter 15, verse 11. He spoke of my joy, mind you, the joy that now fills and thrills his heart. In substance, then, our Lord said, When my joy, the joy that now fills and thrills my heart, shall be yours, your joy shall be full. The American Standard Version reads, Made full. The English Revisers translate it as fulfilled. Turn that word fulfilled around, and you will understand what Jesus actually said, filled full. 
When you get the joy that our Lord Jesus had, even when contemplating his own crucifixion, your joy will be filled full, then and not until then. His joy was fullness of joy, joy filled to the brim. The man of sorrows, though he was our sin-bearer, he was at the same time the most joyous man that ever walked this earth. What were the sources of his joy? Obedience and Fruitfulness The first source of his joy was that of obeying God and bearing fruit for him. This appears in the verse just quoted. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. What were the things he had just spoken unto them that he refers to here? Obedience and fruit-bearing. Note the verse immediately preceding this. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John chapter 15 verse 10. From these words it is evident that his joy was in doing the Father's will. The same thought comes out again in John chapter 4 verse 34. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to accomplish his work. Now look at the other words he had just spoken in John chapter 15 verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. His joy was the joy of bearing fruit for God. These two joys, the joy of obedience to God and the joy of bearing fruit for God, are two of the greatest joys possible to man, and they are both open to us also. Salvation of Souls the second source of the joy of Christ Jesus was closely connected with the first. It was the joy of saving souls. This is seen in one of our texts, in a prophetic preview of the coming Christ. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11. The fruit of the travail of his soul, the pangs of spiritual birth which the Messiah would see and in which he would be satisfied and compensated for all he had suffered would be the newborn souls that would result from his sufferings unto death. Our Lord feels more than compensated for all the agonies he has endured when he sees men born again and thus saved. He exultantly cries to the assembled hosts of heaven, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Luke chapter 15 verse 6. There are few greater joys to a true heart than the joy of seeing others saved, and this joy too can be ours. It can be ours if we are willing to pay the price, and that price is anguish of soul. Meditation on the Father's Will The third source of Christ's joy was joy in the meditation on or contemplation of the Father's will. This appears in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and understanding, and didst reveal them unto babes. Yea, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in thy sight. The word translated rejoiced in this passage is a peculiarly expressive word. It means to exalt or to rejoice exceedingly. It is translated, Be exceeding glad, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, and rejoice greatly, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, where it is accompanied by the very suggestive descriptive phrase, With joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
It may seem at first glance as if this joy were the same as that spoken of under our first heading, but they are really quite different. That was the joy of doing the Father's will. This is the joy of the glad contemplating of the Father's will in its wisdom and all its infinite excellence. This joy can also be and should be ours, and it is a very great joy. God Himself The fourth source of Christ's joy was God Himself. This appears in another prophetic picture of the coming of the Christ of God. I will greatly rejoice in Jehovah. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 The picture is of the coming Messiah. Our Lord said that the opening verses of this same chapter referred to Himself, Luke chapter 4 verses 17 through 21, cross-reference Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 2. This was the deepest source of Christ's joy, God Himself. Joy in God was His supreme joy. Joy in God is joy unchangeable and inexhaustible. This joy is open to us also. And when we know it, nothing can mar our joy. For however circumstances may change, God is always the same, and He is infinite. The joy that is rooted in Him partakes of His own infiniteness. Whether we hang on a cross or sit on a throne, our joy if it is in the infinite God, will be unspeakable and full of glory, as our Lord's joy was. When at the age of ninety-five Polycarp was writhing in physical agony as he burned at the stake, he was at the same time moved with unutterable joy and shouted, Welcome, cross of Christ! Welcome, eternal life! Because like his masters, his joy was in God. His Unconquerable Optimism let us now look at one more feature of the Christ that God portrays in His Word, His unconquerable optimism. We shall see that our Lord Jesus was not only the world's greatest saint, greatest Savior, greatest teacher, and greatest Lord and Master, but He was also the world's greatest and sanest optimist. His optimism was not of the shallow kind, so common, boastful, and blatant today the optimism that comes from closing one's eyes to clearly evident facts. His optimism was the optimism that comes by seeing, with the clear eye of faith in an infinitely wise, loving, and powerful God, the ultimate bearing of facts in the wise, loving, and far-seeing purpose of God. We have a striking portrayal of the unconquerable optimism of the real Christ in another preview of the coming Messiah that was granted to Isaiah. He will not fail nor be discouraged, till he have set justice in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 4. There would indeed be much to discourage him. He would find himself opposed by all the ecclesiastical, political, and military forces of the day. He would be betrayed by one of his own chosen disciples and denied by another. Every one of them would forsake him and flee. He would be subjected to such losses, agonies, suffering, and shame as no other man ever endured on this earth. But in the face of it all, he would refuse to be in the least discouraged, knowing that God reigns, and he would at last set justice in the earth, and that the isles would wait for his law, though it would take his own humiliating death to accomplish it. He saw the Godward side, 
and therefore the bright side of everything. Bright Side of Persecution The unconquerable optimism of the real Christ was manifested in his seeing the bright side of fierce persecution. This we see in Matthew. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall reproach you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Matthew chapter 5 verses 10 through 12. To the average mind, harsh persecution does not seem a bright thing, but it did to the mind of Christ, because he saw the Godward side of it and the glorious outcome of it, and so should we. We should not whine over our persecutions, but we should shout over them, even as the Lord Jesus commanded us. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company and reproach you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Luke chapter 6 verses 22 through 23. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to usward. Romans chapter 8 verse 18. Our light affliction, which is for the moment, worketh for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. Romans chapter 8 verse 17. The Outcome for Others The unconquerable optimism of Christ Jesus manifested itself in his seeing the blessed outcome for others from his humiliating death. We see this in John chapter 12 verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. But this he said, signifying by what manner of death he should die. Our Lord was facing the cross when he uttered these words. The cross was drawing very near. He saw clearly all the agony of the cross for himself, but he saw something even more clearly, and upon that gloriously bright view of the cross he fastened his whole attention. He saw the cross as the mighty magnet that would draw all races, kinds, and conditions of men to himself. He saw the cross as the judgment of the prince of this world, as the end of Satan's power. He saw that through his own death he would bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. So, in whatever appalling sufferings we may be called upon to endure for Christ, we also ought to see the good for other men and the glory to God that is to come through our suffering. Then we can become optimistic even in a fiery furnace. We see the same thing illustrated in our Lord's words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. John chapter 12 verse 24. Here again he bids us to follow him. He goes on to say, He that loveth his life loseth it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. 
If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honor. John chapter 12 verses 25 through 26. Seeing the Blessing from His Death In the third place, the unconquerable optimism of Jesus, the Christ of God, manifested itself in His seeing the blessing to Himself that was to come from His death of agony. We see this in John chapter 14 verse 28, where He said to His disciples in view of His fast-approaching death, the thought of which had filled them with such dismay, Ye heard how I said to you, I go away, and I come unto you. If ye loved me, ye would have rejoiced, because I go unto the Father. In his death, as terrible as it was going to be, he simply saw the door through which he must pass to be with the Eternal Father, the object of his eternal and infinite love. In the same way, at a later time, Paul regarded his own death, as terrible as it was going to be, as the greater good for him, for to depart and to be with Christ was far better. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23. Glorious Resurrection The unconquerable optimism of our Lord also manifested itself in His seeing His humiliating death swallowed up in glorious resurrection. This we see in several places. For example, in John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We see it again in John chapter 16, verses 20-22, through 22, where our Lord said to His disciples on the night before His crucifixion, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But when she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye therefore now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one taketh away from you. The Right Hand of Power In the fifth place, the unconquerable optimism of the Christ manifested itself when on trial for his life before Caiaphas, with the certainty of condemnation to death confronting him, in his looking forward to the time when he would sit at the right hand of power and come on the clouds of heaven. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 62-64. through 64. And the high priest stood up and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Henceforth ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Recall the scene. They had arrested him. They had struck him. John chapter 18 verse 22. He knew they were soon to spit in his face, tear the beard from his face, scourge him, and nail him to the cross. But he looked beyond it all, to the day when he would be seated at the right hand of God, and then when he would come back to this earth in God's own chariot on the clouds of heaven, with all heaven's glorious armies following in his train. So we too should look beyond the present loss, suffering and shame involved in true discipleship, to the day when having overcome, we shall sit down with Christ on his throne, 
even as he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21. Looking to the glad and glorious day. The unconquerable optimism of the true Christ, Christ Jesus, manifested itself in seeing all the turmoil, discord, chaos, anarchy, and desolation that are coming upon this world as the logical and inevitable outcome of having rejected and crucified its rightful king. His optimism is also manifested in his seeing the outcome of the prophecy and precursor of the glad and glorious day of that king's return for the salvation of this wrecked and ruined human society of ours, and its transformation into the fit and eternal abode of God. This appears in a very striking way in Luke chapter 21 verses 25 through 28. And there shall be signs in sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, in perplexity for the roaring of the sea and the billows, men fainting for fear, and for expectation of the things which are coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draweth nigh. So we too, as the night of the present dispensation of this old earth's history darkens, should have hearts that are becoming more and more light-hearted with high hopes built on God's sure word of prophecy. Note again, when these things begin to come to pass, what things? The things just described. Upon the earth, distress of nations, in perplexity for the roaring of the sea and the billows, men fainting for fear and for expectation of the things which are coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. These are the things that cause the hearts of thoughtful statesmen to faint for fear and for expectation of the things which are coming upon human society. What shall we do then? Hang our heads? No. Tremble? No. Get frightened? No. Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draweth nigh. The world's golden age lies in the future, not in the past. The near future, not the remote future. These prophesied things that are happening today in Russia, Poland, Germany, Italy, France, England, and America all shout aloud, Your redemption draweth nigh. We have waited long, but it is coming and coming fast. These are great days in which we are living. Great not because of men's boasting of big drives for money or the biggest thing the church has ever undertaken, which is a lie, an outrageous and infamous lie, but great because the trumpets of God's fast accumulating providences proclaim, The King cometh, God's King.